And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Thank you. You may have a seat. All right, so I got a trivia question for you here uh, to start off today. Question, what do the following things have in common? What do the following things have in common? Uh, Forever 21, the clothing store. Method Man, the rapper from Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, In-N-Out Burgers. Uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, the wrestler. In case you're not into that, which I hope you're not. Uh, Wycliffe John musician, and Tim Tebow. What do they all have in common? Answer, John 3.16. John 3.16. Did you know that In-N-Out Burger and Forever 21 both have John 3.16 on the packaging of their various, uh, their various merchandise? Uh, Method Man and Wycliffe John have songs entitled John 3.16. Uh, Steve Austin uh, changed... Uh, Changed it to Austin 316 uh, in order to mock a Christian opponent. It's hard to believe that a Christian would actually be a professional wrestler. Um, but apparently there was one and he wanted to mock him. So he changed it into his own thing. Austin 316. Nice. Classy, right? Real classy. The whole, the whole thing. And then Tim Tebow uh, famously put John 316 on his eye black. Uh, in the 2009 National Championship game. It led to over 90 million internet searches of John 3.16, and it also led the NCAA to form the Tebow Rule, which now makes it where you cannot write anything on your uh, eye black any longer. So that's, uh, that's what that is. That's the verse that we're looking at today. That's right in the heart of this, uh, of this passage that we're looking at today as we finish this series, Who Is This? Encountering Jesus. Uh, who is this is the question that people regularly asked after they had an encounter with Jesus. And so if you're joining us, let me tell you where we've been. We've been building up in this series. Each message is kind of built on itself. We began first looking at what's the problem with people? What did Jesus say was the problem with people? And the answer that Jesus gave us was that the problem we have is sin. Sin. Missing the mark, falling short of God's glory, doing what we want, uh, worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. That's sin. All of us are guilty, the scripture says. All of us. No one does good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We're all together sinful. We, As it says here in uh, verse 19, uh, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the condition of every person according to Jesus. So then we ask, well, what's so special about, about Jesus then? Well, in light of th- that, there's a big contrast. If we're all filled with sin, Jesus is sinless. Jesus never sinned. Pilate even says, I find no fault in this man. At one point, Jesus says, if any of you can convict me of sin, go for it. And they're silent. He's sinless. And he's divine. Jesus claimed to be God. They picked up stones to stone him because that infuriated them so much. 
When last week we looked at what was behind the death of Jesus, why did God put his son to death on the cross? And we saw that God was showing us his justice and more than that, showing us his love. So what's the matter with people? What's so special about Jesus? What was behind his death? Today we ask the most important question that we could ever ask. And it's why we look at the most well-known Bible verse in, in the scripture. If you've never been to church, if you've never read the Bible, you've heard of John 3.16. You've at least heard of it. Why is it so popular? Why is it so important? It's because it answers the most important question. That's the question we're asking today. How can I know God? How can I know God? That's the most important. I don't know if that's the question you came here to ask. I don't know if that's what you're wrestling with. If that's, my guess is it's probably more, uh, more other circumstantial things like how do I find a job or how can I uh, just kind of figure out this work-life balance thing or, you know, gosh, how, how can I get my kid to get potty trained, right? I mean, that's your pressing question. Come back next week. Maybe we'll talk about that. <laughs> you can text that in with the Q&A. But today we're asking the most important question you could ask. It's the question that, that you will ask if you are on your deathbed. Do I know God? What's after this? Some of you won't have the opportunity to do that because you'll die in an accident, you'll die in an instant, you'll die un, without any warning. But if you have the opportunity to wrestle through that, you'll ask this question. And Jesus answers it for us in John 3.16. So here's what I want to look at in this passage, and then we'll look at Romans 10 uh, as well today, is we're going to look at uh, three L's. I'm a preacher. I've got to have three points. I've got to all start with the same letter, okay? It's part of a, it's a preacher law. All right, the first one, we'll look at the love, the look, and the lordship. The love, the look, and the lordship. Now, the context of John 3 is that Jesus is interacting with a gentleman named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the religious elite of Jesus' day. And Nicodemus comes to him at night, uh, probably a little bit embarrassed, a little bit afraid of being kind of known as a Jesus guy. And so he comes to him at night and he says, you know, Jesus, wow, everyone's really impressed with the things you're doing, and clearly you're from God. No one could do the stuff you do unless he was from God. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you will not inherit eternal life. And this throws Nicodemus into a quandary because he hasn't heard the term born again, right? Ever since Jimmy Carter uh, became the first evangelical born again uh, president or whatever, that phrase has been in the cultural consciousness, born again. Nicodemus had never heard that. And so Nicodemus says, born again, what, what do you mean? I mean, it, I don't think I can go back to my mother's womb. That doesn't seem like that's going to work. What, what is this? And so Jesus explains it. And, uh, and, and we'll get to verses 14 and 15, but I want to start with this key verse of John 3, 16, where we look at the love. John 3, 16. In case you need a reminder of it, we've got a video here. Just, just in case you need to know what this is and why it matters, take a look. John 3.16 For God so loved the world The whole world Everyone Anyone That a lot of people That he gave his one and only son His only son That whoever believes in him Will not perish But have eternal life
That is exactly right. Wow. Wow. Where does the wow of John 3.16 come from? It comes from this idea that God so loved the world. It's the first thing we're looking at is God's love. God so loved the world. The mission that drove God to save people. The mission that drove God to send his son. The thing, the motivation that was behind God's doing all that he's doing to try to undo all the effects of sin is his love. His love. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's a theologian, William Vanstone, and he has said that all of us know the difference just inherently as people between false love and true love. Uh, We know the difference between a false love that's just someone sort of using you to get something and and a true love that is selfless and real and and unconditional. A false love uh, really has three uh, three main things attached to it. A false love is selfish. Your aim is to use the other person to fulfill you. Uh, False love is conditional. You give it only as long as your needs are met in return. And a false love is non-vulnerable. What he means by that, what what Vanstone means by that is is that you'll draw back, you'll withhold some stuff if needed. You're not totally laying yourself out there, you're not totally being vulnerable, you're not totally all in, you're just kind of, you're you're playing your cards right. Strategic, selfish, it's conditional, it's vulnerable. True love, on the other hand, is selfless. In true love, your greatest passion and joy is the other person's joy. True love is also unconditional. You you give it regardless of what you get. And true love is vulnerable. You open yourself up completely. It's the idea of of Genesis 2 love, that you're naked and unashamed. The other person sees you as you are. They know you as you are, and yet you're loved anyway. That's true love. And Vanstone, after after analyzing this, he, he, he has a surprising conclusion. His answer is, that nobody, no human being, can give true love. He says that all of our love as human beings is in some way a false love. And the reason he says for that is he says that all of us have a need to be loved. So, so we need water, we need air, we need food, we need to be loved. That makes sense because part of what it is to be in God's image, if God is love and if God is loving, then then it makes sense that we would need it. And so Vanstone says you you can never have true love because you always have this need to be loved in return. And so it turns our human love into kind of a a mercenary sort of love. You love to get loved back. And so what Vanstone says is that we need someone to love us who doesn't need us. That's what we need. Listen, God doesn't need you. God has been eternally loving and satisfied and joyful and content with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit forever. God created out of the overflow of his love, not because he needed it, not because God was sort of insecure and needed someone to sort of, you know, God, we really like you. You're a good God. He didn't need that. He created just out of the overflow of his love. And that same love is what causes him to pursue us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he loves. He doesn't doesn't need us in return. 
Would it thrill the heart of God for his people to worship him and adore him and, and, and love him in return? Of course. Of course he would love that. But he doesn't need it. And so God can give. God so loved the world. God loved. He didn't need us in return. And, and, and he, it says, so loved the world. Now, just to be clear on this, the word so there means uh, in this way God loved the world. It doesn't mean God was so in love with the world that he did this. It says God so, in this, in this way, God loved the world. Well, in what way? God so loved the world, God in this way loved the world that he gave his only son. This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. It's it's this that tells us this. This is the way we know. And the example that comes to mind is the example that we read about in Genesis 22. It's the example of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, uh, the father of, uh, of really all three of the major world religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Abraham was the central figure and he'd been promised that he would have this incredible inheritance and that nations would come out of him and and yet there was a big problem is is he and his wife couldn't get pregnant and it went for a long long time and they were old in years and God kept promising them and kept promising them and eventually God gives them a son named Isaac and the son grows and then God says Abraham I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your son I want you to kill him. And Abraham, in faith, the scripture says, believing that God would raise him from the dead or do something, says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And so Abraham goes, and he, he takes his son Isaac, and, and Isaac's on the way going, Dad, uh, we're doing a sacrifice, but I don't see a goat around here anywhere. And Abraham says, hey, God will provide. And, and they keep doing this, and he ties his son up, and he raises the knife to kill him. And God says, stop. He says, Abraham, now I know that you love me because you would not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. That's what God said. And what the cross tells us, what this verse, John 3, 16, tells us is that now because of Jesus' death on the cross, uh, not just about to be killed, but actually killed as a sacrifice for our sin in our place, the death that we deserve to die, bearing the judgment and the justice and the wrath that should have been poured out on us. Because of that, now we can look at God and say, God, we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. What was behind this love? What what did God want to prevent from happening? Well, it says, if you continue in verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Wow. What God is after is he's wanting to prevent us from perishing. The word perish here means ruined or destroyed. It is the fate of every sinner who dies apart from God. Perish. Ruin. The Bible describes this as a place that's separated from the presence of the Lord. 
a place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of destruction that never ends. And what this is saying is that God so loved the world in this way that he gave his son so that whoever, anybody from anywhere, not, not just Jew, not just someone who's got Abraham in their, in their family tree, but so that anyone, whoever would believe in him, would not perish. This is serious. This is important. If you don't believe in Jesus, it says in verse 18, you are condemned. That's Jesus speaking. Not some just angry preacher. And I'm really not that angry. I'm glad to be here. But, 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 I, but I can't communicate this with any more urgency. If you're here and you, and you are to die without Christ, you will perish. And God did something about that. See, God didn't come just for sort of what many have called moralistic therapeutic deism. Put this screen on the, or this phrase on the screen. Have you heard this phrase? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, there were some people that did some research about young people in America and their religious beliefs. And what they found, I'd love to do a whole uh, message on this, even a whole series on this, because I'm so captivated by how relevant this is to us. Um, he looked at, these researchers looked at all these young people and found that the dominant religion in America, not Christianity, it's moralistic therapeutic deism. You go, well, how can that be? I've never even heard of that. Well, listen, here's what moralistic therapeutic deism, just break down the words here, okay? Moralistic. The purpose of life is to be, you know, to be a good person. Don't kill anybody, because that's really setting the standard high. Be good. That's the point of religion. Be a good person. It uh, doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you're, you don't you know, believe it too strongly or hurt anybody. As long as it makes you good. Moralistic. And then therapeutic. This is mostly about you feeling better. It's about you have, having happiness and serenity and joy. It's moralistic, therapeutic, and it's deism. And deism is the idea, it's the idea that God has created things, but is not personally involved with them. This is kind of the watchmaker idea, that God creates the watch, sets the watch, and then steps back and the watch ticks. So this idea is that God wants you to be a good person, he wants you to feel good, and he's not really involved in your life very much, which means that you can kind of keep him at arm's length. This verse says, no, that's not true. You will perish because you can't be moral enough. And the purpose of Jesus coming is not simply therapy for you. It's rescue, which is why it's not deism like he's kind of distant. He's personally involved. This is God becoming flesh so that you will not perish. This is crucial. This is not just a little boost to your self-esteem and your sort of self-redemption project. This is God saying, you're a total failure apart from me. I'll rescue you. This is you drowning in the ocean. And he jumps in and pulls you out, brings you back to life through CPR. That's what this is. Here's how Paul David Tripp says it. He says, if you read the scriptures carefully, you will never get the idea that the work of Christ is for well-adjusted people who just need a little redemptive boost. 
Redemption is nothing less than the rescue of helpless people facing an eternity of torment apart from God's love. God did this so that we wouldn't perish. Then it says in verse uh, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You go, well, I feel pretty condemned right now because you just told me I'm going to hell. No, that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus came to save you from that. The good news is that if you'll trust him, if you'll depend on him, you can be saved. You can be rescued. Jesus didn't come to condemn it, but to save it. And God has saved his people before because of his love. And that leads us to number two, the look. The love, now the look. God has done this before. God has saved before. This is not a new thing for God. This is actually the whole pattern of of the Bible. And so look up to verse 14 of John 3 here. Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus here is referring back to a fairly obscure passage in Numbers 21, Numbers 21, we'll put this on the screen. Uh, But this wouldn't have been obscure to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a a ruler of the Pharisees. In fact, in verse uh, 10, Jesus sort of says to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you really need this much help? You need me to, don't you understand this stuff? Don't you remember the serpents and the look of faith? Don't you remember this? And so Jesus refers here to Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, here's what we read. This is during the, the, after the exodus where the people have left Egypt. They're now wandering in the wilderness, wanting to enter the, the promised land. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This is your kids on hour seven of the car, of the vacation trip, right? Why did you put us in this van to kill us? It's terrible, right? It just, just warms your heart when you hear that, right? That's what God's people are doing. Then the Lord, so God says, you want to die in the wilderness? I'm game. Verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. He's going, you want to die? We, it doesn't have to be of starvation. We can go a lot quicker. So these serpents, they, they start to bite these people. Verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. You see this, uh, this response that they have. They, they, after this response of complaining, they see what happens. It convicts them of their sin. They realize not just that, man, we would like the serpents to stop, but we've sinned against God. We're, we're, we're in trouble. He says, pray to us. And so Moses does, verse 8. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, this, this is now God's instruction after Moses prays. He says, make a fiery serpent... And set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So you get this? Moses says, God, help us, save us. People are dying. God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Get a pole, make a snake out of it, and lift it up. 
This is a very strange thing. I mean, God doesn't usually tell you to make an image of something. He says, make an image of this snake and, and lift it up. And verse 9 says this, that he did it. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. People are snake bit. They're dying. And the offer here is, look at the serpent and you'll live. And Jesus, back to John 3, 14, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In, in Numbers 21, it's looking. In John 3, it's believing. It's the same idea. It's saying, I am snake bit. And I am dying, and I cannot save myself. Now listen, we try. Because all of us are snake bit. And we try to do things to overcome that. Try to medicate ourselves from the pain of it. We do that with actual medication, or with other substances, or with food, or with sex, or with technology. Medicate ourselves, just go numb, I don't want to feel it. Others of us do this just by deepening our self-reliance through willpower i'm going to overcome my problems through discipline through structure i just need just need to get more organized self others of us do this by putting our hope in false saviors if i could just have that relationship if we could just have kids if i could just get married if she would just leave And, and it's this false hope. And Jesus says, look to me. And it's interesting there, the phrase lifted up is sort of a pun that Paul, or I'm sorry, that, that John is using. Because literally Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross. But that word also is translated exalted. In the place of Jesus' exaltation, the place of Jesus' greatest glory is on the cross with sinners who are helpless looking to him to live. That's where Jesus is glorified. So look. Believe. You don't have to die. You don't have to perish. But you will have to die to yourself. That takes us finally to the Lordship. Go to Romans 10 if you have your Bible Romans 10, if you've got one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's page 946. This passage, interestingly, my high school baseball coach, uh, Mark Johnson, his son, uh, Tyler, is the lead pastor of Redemption. And my high school baseball coach got saved after he went to a Denver Broncos game, and he saw somebody standing out with a sign that said, Romans 10.10. 10. That's this passage. The Lordship. We'll start in verse 9. The Apostle Paul here writes, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Mark Johnson sees Romans 10.10 on a poster. And he goes home and he opens a Bible and he reads it. And God saves him. Because what did he see? 
he saw that he could be rescued from his sin by confessing with his mouth. That means to agree, to acknowledge. Well, to, to confess what? Well, other scriptures tell us to confess sin. That's, that's part of it. This says to confess, to agree with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Lord. The word Lord means master. It means king. That's why we sang today, here is our king. That's who Jesus is. And salvation comes not just for those who want rescue from perishing, but for those who also want to surrender to Jesus as Lord. See, you may go, well, gosh, I don't like the sound of perishing. That weeping, gnashing of teeth thing, I don't know if I'd buy that, but I'd kind of like to be safe. So I'll believe in Jesus. I, and when you're doing that point is you're saying, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is rescuing me from hell. But, but you're not confessing Jesus as Lord. Unless you say, I want to surrender to him. I want to follow him. I want him to direct the course of my life. And that's what it is to, to have faith. It's not just to, to want fire insurance against the penalty. It's to see Jesus as exalted and wonderful and majestic. And to follow him and to surrender to him, believing, as it says there in verse 9, that God raised him from the dead. This is about surrender. How do we know God? It's through looking and surrendering to his lordship. You know that I'm contractually obligated to quote Tim Keller every week. <laughs> so here it is. If your agenda is the end, then Jesus is just the means. You're using him. But if Jesus is the king, you cannot make him a means to your end. You can't come to a king negotiating. You lay your sword at a king's feet and say, command me. You hear negotiating? God, if you come through for me in this, I'll do what it is to, to, to follow him is to say, I'm snake bit with sin. And I will die. I will perish. But I want to look to the one who can save me. And I am trusting that to follow him is actually the way of life. That's what faith is. This is what it was for me to become a Christian. In just a few moments, some people are going to come and they're going to be baptized and they're going to briefly just share what God has done in their life and how he has worked to save them. And I'll tell you, for me, what my Christian life was like, I wouldn't even call it a real Christian life. It was a make-believe Christian life. It was using God to look good. I grew up in a very moral family, and, and uh, as an only child, and I had lots of pressure, not, not that my parents intentionally did this, just the nature of the situation was there was a lot of pressure to perform and to be good and to not view myself as a, as a bad kid. And so, so I wanted to, so, so I went forward uh, a couple different times at, at you know, Billy Graham Crusade and then a Mother's Day out and then a vacation Bible. And I, and, I, and I did that. And I would tell my mom, Mom, I asked Jesus into my heart. And she'd go, oh, good. And, but, but, but what I did that for was the, oh, good. 
And so I got into high school, and there were some guys that I admired who played baseball and were a couple years older than me, and I got in a Bible study with them, and, 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 I, and I, wanted, I wanted just enough Jesus to kind of help my reputation as a good guy. And then a neighbor got involved in my life, and we read John, and we got to chapter 6, where Jesus says, I want everything. What it is to follow me is you lay your sword down, and you say, command me. And, and that is when I think I was truly born again. That's when God saved me. Is when it wasn't just a reliance on me to prop up my own self-image, to prop up my reputation with others. It was to say, I want Jesus no matter what. That, that's what it means when people say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He's my master and my rescuer. The question is, have you experienced that? Not just do you believe it, have you experienced it? So a few weeks ago, we went to Disneyland and California Adventure. And we said beforehand to people, hey, uh, what are the things we've got to do? Like, if you don't do anything else, what do you do? And about half the people we asked said, you've got to do soaring over California. Have you ever done this? And, and it's... I'll describe it, but it, it's, it's amazing, right? And, and what it is, is it's, it's this giant, like, IMAX size um, screen, and it's about a four or five-minute ride where you're lifted up into the air, and you're so close to this just massive screen that it literally feels like you're flying over California. And it takes you through all these different parts, and it jumps you and lurches you. And, 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 and people would describe that, and you'd go, oh, yeah, just like you're doing. Uh, that sounds cool. Okay, And then you get on it. Your feet come off the air. And you go over a vineyard and they somehow shoot out the smell of trees. And they blow wind at you. And you get off that and you go, oh my gosh. We got to do that again. (laughs) Have you experienced Jesus like that? Like where you've, you've had a sense in your heart of your sin being washed away and a sense that Jesus is wonderful. Have you had that? Or is, or is, is there still not there yet? Oh, I pray that God would be doing that in you even now. That's what we exist to help you with, is to grow in this experience of knowing and trusting in God. Who is this? He's our God our Savior. He's our King. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, love you. We love this opportunity to gather together as your people and to celebrate your grace to us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that you are King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have a moment here to respond. And oftentimes, uh, just about every week, we celebrate communion together as a church. But we're not going to do that this week. We're going to celebrate baptism. Those are the two major ordinances that Jesus gave to his people is baptism, celebrating new life in Christ, and communion. And so uh, the band is going to come in just a moment, and they're going to lead us in one song. And then after that song, we're going to have you just sit down. And uh, we've got three people that are going to be baptized today, Roy and Darcy and Mandy. 
And they're going to come up and they're going to just briefly share their story. They're going to share about how God has saved them and what he's done. They're going to share this work of God's grace in their life. And then they're going to get into the tub and the water's mostly warm. And, uh, and they're going to go down under the water. And then they're going to come up. Let me just explain to you, especially if you're here as a guest, and you go, what? I know this baptism thing's important, but I don't know if I really get it. Uh, there's nothing uh, magic about these waters, okay? Like, I'm not more blessed now, less blessed, more blessed, less blessed, right? There's nothing magic about the water. It's just water. That water does not cleanse any one of their sin. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses from sin. But what this does is the, the, the individuals will go down into the water just like Jesus went down into the grave and then they'll come up out of the water just like Jesus rose out of the grave. So this is a symbol, this is a picture of new life. It is a picture of cleansing, but the cleansing happened through faith in Jesus. And so as they come up out of the water and as they share their stories, I hope that we can rejoice and respond and clap and celebrate. This is a big old birthday party. That's what we're celebrating is their new birth in Christ. So the band's gonna lead us, uh, then they'll come up and share, and then we'll just conclude our time with a great time of response and celebration and singing. Let me pray one more time. Father, thank you uh, for this opportunity to celebrate new life. Thank you for the, the folks that are being baptized. I pray you'd give them grace as they share their story and that this would be a great uh, line in the sand moment where they're going public with their love for you. So I pray that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this song.